don't know this, then you're behind the times. The only metric that matters is convenience. Rules apply to you. Suddenly you're an advertiser. This week on Social Minds. The class issue is rife, it's bad. We were joined by Craig Oldham, founder of Office of Craig, the creative director of Rough Trade Books and chair of DNAD North. Yes, there is clearly a skills and diversity gap within the advertising and creative industries. Now, it feels very much like a lot of advertising is still very middle class. So what does a working class lad from Barnsley and Craig think of all that? We touched on some of the issues that still exist, how to tackle them, and also some of the campaigns that concern diversity examples of it done wrongly like with the home offices attack on knife crime and also examples where it has been quite powerful and positive such as sport england's campaign this girl can what if you just peppered in a couple of people that were a bit bit different to you or the opposite to that person there that might complement and it might raise that bar and you might actually start doing some really good shit all this and more coming up How can we close the skills and diversity gap to get the hidden many into creative roles? Big one, isn't it? Very Always big, is. Usually. <laughs> Try my best to answer. In the whole, I think there's, there are lots of things you can do. And I think it's on us all. The onus is on everybody working in this industry to make sure, A, we can sustain it in a meaningful sense and look after it. And also to make it better and improve it. I think we all have a responsibility to do that. And it's, it's, it's always, it's a nuanced question and a nuanced answer, unfortunately. There is no sort of, you know, direct response. It's not, it's not a black and white matter um, because there's so many variables, how big an agency is, you know, where it's based, you know, what it sort of does for a, to earn its sort of crust. All these things really factor into, you know, the education system as well mm. that feeds into the industry is not exempt from this. I think that's a really crucial part. So, yeah, where do you want to start? <laughs> I suppose, do we, do we start by acknowledging that there is a skill gap there is a sort of creativity gap there's a kind of uh not hierarchy as such but there's definitely yeah there's definitely a class system within it feels like the creative industries and advertising yeah i would i would say so i mean in my experience um you can tell by my thick emmerdale yorkshire accent i love it i uh Sorry to the <laughs> listeners of that, you know, but um, yeah, do not adjust your podcast settings. Uh, Craig is from Yorkshire. No, it's time we had some more Yorkshire but, representation on the yeah, podcast. Yeah, but I, I, you know, I, I, you know, I grew up in a, in Barnsley, which is in South Yorkshire, trapped in between, you know, Sheffield and Leeds. These two sort of, for argument's sake, fairly metropolitan and you know, really diverse and mixed cities. And and Barnsley, it wasn't necessarily that. And it was an industrial place. And growing up in and amongst that, someone who sort of took an interest in the arts, let's say, or creativity, although that's not a word I really knew until, you know, I was probably 18 plus. Because if you told anybody in Barnsley, you, you know, you were into drawing or arts, that's exactly what their entire sort of scope of reference was, you know, if you like the arts. Music didn't fall into that, that was something else, you know. Yeah. Arts just meant, oh, he must be good at drawing that lad. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was just saying, I'm also from a small Yorkshire town, it was exactly the same, less so for girls, but for lads. Yeah. 100%. But you can just sort of, you can you can, you can kind of feel the edges. They're not, it's not a, a blurred thing, it's not a, a transient thing that you can float across all this sort of creative spectrum that we now know it working in the industry it was it felt really walled in it was like oh if i like these different things if or if i'm not into sports or if i'm not into heavy industry and i like these artistic things and that's just art i have to do art and mm. i think although i feel that 
obviously through my education, I've learned more and grown more and been exposed to more things. And, and those that sort of, that's dissolved, you know, that memory and that's kind of gone away. Mm. And I now know that it's much more richer and much more, much, much more in depth in terms of what creativity can do and where creativity appears in the world. We need to do better at those people that are, you know, not, you know, at doing at school, doing GCSEs. We need to get better at those people that are young, that don't know, that come from these places and are given a fair crack at it. Everybody yeah. knows they have frames of reference for other industries. They have frames of reference for getting into the NHS because we all go see doctors and we all go see mm. nurses and we all fall off as bikes and get hurt and then someone repairs us. We all have those experiences. We all know what as mum and dads do and aunties and uncles. And but, but when you come from a town like Barnsley or a small Yorkshire town where everybody does heavy industry or NHS and they don't do artistic stuff, mm. that's a block. And what, and what about the work as well, Craig? Because one of the things that, you know, it's a word that gets bandied around and bandied around and bandied around and it's authenticity. Do you think, you know, for somebody who works very closely with DNAD and, and for other, you know, award entries and nominations that you see, do you think the, it's visible that the work suffers in places as a result of, you know, people from black, Asian, ethnic minorities or working class backgrounds or people with disabilities or anybody who's feels maligned, you know, does it show? Well, I mean, first of all, I guess I think it's worth saying that, you know, the class issue is rife, it's bad. And the thing about the class issue is it is it, it also underpins and interrupts all the other issues we have, such as gender, such as race, you know, those, those other issues are crippling the industry as well. But your gender or your race and your class, you know, you could have multiple of these kind mm -hmm. of things that, that can be barriers to you getting into the industry. Yeah, I feel like we just focus on, when you say diversity, you just think women or people of colour. Yeah. And you don't tend to think about, you know, people from working class backgrounds mm -hmm. or disability. Or people with disabilities, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and there seems to be like... Um, a sort of facade that it's improving year on year, which it is. But I was doing some research this morning and the IPA put out an annual survey uh, for diver diversity every single year. And I was just looking at the numbers and between women in C-suite roles and people from ethnic minorities in C-suite roles from 2017, both groups have only increased in representation by like 1%. It's like minimal. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that kind of, you know, I don't have the stats, but that definitely aligns with my experiences of it when yeah. I've seen and heard and been in places. And I think for me, it's 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 one of the unfortunate kind of results of when when a topic is newsworthy and it gets a lot of kind of traction, that that is actually detrimental to the actual issue. Because not all, it's not always when everybody's talking about something, that doesn't always mean that a change is going to come and a change yeah. is going to happen. And I think that's because people still, there's still a, a line that people have to cross. They have to then act. They can't mm. just sort of join this conversation and not do anything about it. And I'm not saying everybody has to get out there and, you know, really try and tech on the world, but we can all do the smallest little things to just incrementally change and make something better mm. in ourselves, in the people that we work with, in the organizations that we work with, or the organizations that we represent. And gradually, if everybody has one little ripple, that will you know, it, it adds up. And I think that's what's happened. I think people are seeing this as one of those things. Oh, it's all right. Everybody's talking about it. It's going to change a lot quicker yeah. and we'll have those things. Policy will be made and it'll come down to us and we'll yeah. have to do something about it. It's so like it's assuming fine. that everyone else will yeah. like vote for you when and actually, you don't have to put I think yours in. As you say, with the, with the numbers, I think that's pretty obvious that's not happening and yeah. we need to be active and not passive in that. Yeah. And going back to what you were saying about the awards stuff, um, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure it's, you know, first of all, I guess... To be fair to awards things, they can only judge what's put in front of them. Mm. But if the industry is, and it is, you know, made up of what we've been talking about, you know, 
high, high, high numbers of, you know, middle-class white males, um, then that's the work that's that's going to be the overwhelming majority and that's the work that's going to be seen, that's the work that's going to be awarded. That's not representative of the work that actually wins because we never really get to see the, the people behind the work in those kinds of schemes. I think for me, the, the, it's more a case of, is the work of a poor standard but then wins all the awards? No, I think it's a case of, we don't know how better it actually could be if we just opened it up. Is this, I think yeah. that's definitely true. Yeah, you know, we, yeah. we see work and we think that's a great ad or yeah. that's a great design. And we don't necessarily always go, I wonder who did that? You know, that, that I don't think that's in human nature. And part of me actually doesn't think that that matters. Mm. But I think the standard that, that we're at of, of what we define as that's a great ad or that's a great piece of design, that could be higher if we just open up our doors to people with different backgrounds, with different gender experiences, yeah. you know, with different class experiences, because we could raise that bar even further. One of the examples that comes to mind is the uh, home office chicken boxes. I, I, I'm not sure if you saw those, the, the whole did, sort of yeah, yeah. hashtag knife, yeah, knife free. Yeah, knife crime stuff. I must, you know, it's, it's hard to say. I, I, I kind of saw both sides of the argument and saw a kind of, you know, when it comes down to something like knife crime, maybe you just have to be bold and brash. And, but also saw the inherent kind of non-political correctness in that. Do you think? Yeah, a lot of people were offended. We spoke about it the morning it came out and you yeah. said at the time, didn't you, that you you didn't think it was like that bad. Yeah, but it's hard to, I yeah. I, I kind of don't really know what my position is on it, but that, what I'm trying to get at is that is, do we see cases of this sort of work coming through in 2019 where it shouldn't be in the old sort of saying goes well it's all about more people in the room you know did you actually ask any women or black people or whoever or again any mm. of these maligned kind of yeah but again i think it's a i think it's a it's a much more complex question and answer for that i mean i I, under, I completely understand i mean i personally think it was it was a pretty poor decision to do that but i could understand if the numbers are there and again i don't have them to hand but if the numbers were there and they, and they were saying that a large proportion of the target audience they were aiming for in the research that shows knife crime is sort of, I guess, you know, happening more amongst those communities and, mm. and those kind of age ranges, that they were going to target it by doing that. But my point is, if even if all those numbers back up, it's like do something a bit more meaningful. Because mm. the, the, there was nowhere to go after seeing one of those boxes. There was no, no yeah. there was no fundamental, you know, sustainable planned in method for actually tackling the real problems. And that that to me was it just felt like a, a knee jerk you know, a fundamentally misguided and stupid fucking thing to do. Yeah, mm. yeah. To, to, to sort of isolate these these groups and, and, and to be fair, perpetuate stereotypes amongst a certain community. And I think that's wrong. Yeah. And then have nowhere f to actually meaningfully address these problems and have no support or funding or kind of process or planning in, in place to then address it properly because it's not just those people mm. and it's not mm. just those communities. It's not just that background or class that is affected by knife crime. Yeah. I agree. So it's, it's, so, I mean, the other one as well is, is 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 a couple of years ago when you know campaigns that that really focused on young girls growing up and their kind of experiences moving forward. And again, it's a similar thing. Let's let's make a campaign that that really kind of tries to empower women. And they're they're really good and they were great. And of course, they need to be applauded. But this is on the other side. But but again, where's where's the systemic change that needs to happen mm. after the fact? of that mm. ad going out and everybody feeling yeah that's great me myself as a as a as a as a male i remember seeing the camp this girl can campaign about engaging um 
women in sports and you know and i remember seeing it i was just laying on the sofa like a you know idiot after work one night and it made me sit up because i thought wow that was really powerful and i remember thinking i hope my sister's seen that or i hope my mom's seen that yeah or if i had a daughter you know that'd be i'd want them to see that but i still know nothing more than i did when i saw that campaign other than this is empowering and this is going in the right direction and it did a lot more things other than just sort of try and push a message across to a target audience you know we saw women real women on the telly for a change rather than what we normally see in sort of women's products campaigns where it's a certain kind of of, of size of sort of race and and the kind of you know affluent background kind of you know it, it was mm-hmm. a picture of what is perpetually pushed out there. This is what a woman looks like, mm. and I was really glad that we that, that they didn't do that. That they that they took real women. They pretty much stalked them. If you read about the campaign, hung out around gyms and swim swimming pools and parks and park runs mm. to find real women who were doing it and breaking the kind of the stats. Yeah, so see, I, I didn't know that, that they did there. that. They did that much research beforehand, and I think in instances where we see campaigns that have put that sort of much effort into it, I think it it was effective in what it meant to do. I think if you look at some. Something like the the knife crime campaign that is an issue that needs that sort of after the fact because it's you know an actual problem that needs addressing pretty imminently um but for this girl can i think yeah i thought it was a brilliant campaign and i think it's like the more we see those types of campaigns it just has to become like the majority of adverts um and for me it's not so much about addressing a certain issue or taking action on the spot but just getting people used to that is like the general narrative yeah um, no i agree yeah. i think it was a great thing Mindset to do change thing it, but again it was a minority wasn't it in terms of an ad and mm. I, I think I, i'm trying to I'm, I'm really struggling to get the um name of the campaign in my head and it was the i think it was for dove or maybe it was a, a sort of a period product i can't remember maybe it was always there was one where they got young girls and they asked them in front of camera to do do things like throw, is it throw like show a me girl? strong yeah something like that i think yeah. always did throw like a girl yeah and and that kind of and and how that sort of changes but mm. there was there was it just felt to me like there was a there was a sort of a, a drop afterwards yeah i think that always happens with those kind of adverts. yeah same with like look at that the gillette ad i know i know it got a lot of backlash but mm. there is sort of like a, a sense of oh isn't that a good thing isn't it nice and they move on to the next thing which is, you know, look at, was it Can last year? The diversity was the theme yeah. for, for 2018. And there was all these adverts. But like you say, Craig, it's it's like nothing's really happening after that. So I guess how do we go from making nice adverts that make people say, oh, that's nice for a minute, to actually making this systemic, uh, systemic change? I'm not sure I have the answer, really, if I'm being honest, because... I think it's really, I think it's really complicated, and I think it's got to be bigger than our industry. I mean, we have to have support from the people that we work for. You know, our clients need to want that. Capitalism's an absolute bastard for this because until it makes any money, they're not going to change anything, and that's ridiculous. Mm. But you know, zoning back in on things that we can actually do, I think, as as creative agencies, whether you're a designer or working advertising, I think you have a responsibility to make those changes in and of yourself and in and of the organisation. And yeah. And just even if it's just trying to sort of recognize your own sort of inherent kind of, you know, biases or your own kind of confirmation biases that you have in yourself about what kind of things you like and why and mm. and then not enforcing your taste onto people because that might not be right. Yeah, and definitely. I want to get back onto the, the class system momentarily, actually, as well, because it's very easy to look at Cannes as well and think, well, OK, it's, you know, the creme de la creme in the south of France, guzzling rosé, it's that sort of scene. Yes, it celebrates the best in creativity, but... 
but you know, when 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 I think back now and I think of like uh, you know, and granted it was mainly men, you know, um that we that we hear about from say the eighties, you did hear of sort of working class names, didn't you? Coming from like, you know, Sunderland and parts of the UK and it was a bit of a change. Do you think we've kind of things have gotten you know, those people have made their fortunes and now we've gotten back to that middle class kind of area now? Is it always that way? It's uh Well, I mean <sighs> I'm not sure. I, th- I think it's, I know what you're saying because I appreciate that there are sort of people that book the trend. Um, I guess for me, again, is is sustaining that. The thing that disappoints me about the people that you sort of mentioning, you know, no names, but w- why, if they came through a system that was inherently rigged against them, why didn't they do something about it when they got to the top mm-hmm. and they didn't? Because mm-hmm. uh, we're still facing it. They might have tried little things and, and I'm sure that, you know, most of them genuinely will want to help and will want to change things up. But I think, again, that's one of my biggest problems is that we don't, we're not reflective about it enough. Um, I think when, you, when you're such an, I think, I think these kind of qualities like reflectiveness and ambition don't necessarily always go hand in hand mm. because when... We see ambition sort of, you know, internally and externally as a, as a quality. We see it as a, like a, a sort of dogged kind of tunnel vision almost. Like mm. I know what I want and I'm going to go get it. But actually we, reflectiveness actually requires a pause and it requires a bit of contemplation. And you need those quiet moments to actually think about what you're doing and why and how what you're doing. You know, if you're absolutely ambitious and you're just trailblazing straight forward, what, what are you leaving in your wake? Mm. Yeah, You need yeah. to be able to stop, turn around and have a look and help people come along that journey with you. Is there an element of fear, do you think, for people from minority backgrounds who make it to the top and think, well, they want to be part of making change and maybe their presence is enough to help that change happen? But in terms of being vocal about it, is there a sense of, oh, you know, I don't want to shake things up too much because I might have made it here by lucky chance. And if I raise my voice too much, they might realize, oh, I'm a minority person and somehow their voice would be quietened. I think there's an element of that. Yeah, I think there is. I think I think everybody in the industry has a to varying degrees and, 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 and obviously different circumstances. Everybody has a bit of imposter in them. Mm. Um, and I think that's mainly just because it's creativity and we literally make it up. So yeah, I don't think imposter syndrome really is, shouldn't be a thing because we're all making it up anyway, um, by very definition. And I think I think there is a, a, a bit of that because I feel that you have to sort of play the game a little. You know, if if, if it is a largely middle middle class you know outfit that sets up the board game and you then play it, mm. you're going to have to sort of chameleon elements to navigate through that. Yeah, definitely. And like that's one why person will be focusing on I sort think, of survival and not helping everyone else through. And and that, that's a partial thing, our, you know. We that's, talk about speaking our audience's language and you know the same language as the clients as well, don't we? Uh, you know. And that's often in strategic terms, like, you know, don't speak to me about, uh, you know, this, speak to me about ROI or CPM and whatnot. But I'm gaining more and more that there's a sense of in hiring side and in, you know, the side where you're sort of making your way through the industry. There's sort of a bit of a sense of, you know, you wear certain skin, I suppose. In, mm, what's in the phrase? You hire in the mirror. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think, but that's, I think that's, again, lots of things all combined into one. I think it's a, I think we often bandy around the idea of like agency culture in this, in this hiring in the mirror thing. I think there's a contradiction that happens really, and we're all hypocritical for it. I think we all talk about creativity as being this weird, feral thing that we don't really understand that happens whenever that, and we encourage students and we encourage our staff and our sort of the people we work with to go and go enjoy different things, try different things, try new things. And, and it all adds up and it all comes in and, you know, the richer, the better, and the, the more different, the better. Yet we turn around and we, when we're looking to find talent or new talent or bring people in, that is completely, we completely forget about that. Why would you not apply those same kind of sets of rules to when you're hiring? 
from your experience, mm. is it about, you know, where did you go to art school? Where did you go to uni? Uh, you know, how many roses have you won? How many campaigns have you done? Which brands, you, you know, is that you're saying there's too much of that in a yeah. way? I think they're just safety mechanisms. I think people just use them, A, because they're a little bit lazy, because they've got a lot of work to do and half the time hiring is not something that they want to spend a lot of time on. Yeah. So it's, it's a kind of like a checklist. That's and a safe want, uni. I kind of know yeah. that. Yeah. I know they that. Want, I know that agency that they used to work for. I know that award scheme. Yeah. Which must Let's be super frustrating fit. for anybody who. Well, it's, it's hard for me to talk on this subject almost because I'm not classically trained in advertising. Haven't really been to university, so so my experience, I suppose, has been very different. But I guess I'm, you know, not kind of short-sighted enough to know that there was a bit of luck involved here and there. And it's not like that for people, like you said, from you know, from the metropolitan city, I suppose, which was kind of like you know you can follow other people and be apprentices. And, and whatnot but there are obviously like we said hidden figures out there from parts of the UK that will never you know yeah get on that train so to speak to London or to you know because it just doesn't happen in I the think way. it's important say if you if you are in charge of hiring to like not hire in the mirror in the sense that yeah it might make your life easier to find a candidate that's on the same page as you and you don't have to do too much training you think this person's going to agree with me great it's going to make my life easy and instead look for people who challenge you you like challenge yeah. your very ideas and beliefs because that mm. I think leads to better creative work. Exactly, I completely agree, and I think this is what I meant about the kind of the hypocrisy in it because we talk about I think we 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 mask it all with this idea of culture and we sort of say will that person fit in with what we're doing? Yeah, and actually sometimes that's not very healthy. Mm. Sometimes you need people who are different and who have different backgrounds and different ideas and different tastes and yeah. music that they put on in the studio that upsets everybody else. You mm. kind of need that because. If you have everybody doing the same job from the same background, then everybody's just going to produce the same work. Yeah, and you need the anti-culture yeah. fit. <laughs> but it does. It, it kind of it, it breeds this weird monoculture amongst agencies, and it and it breeds this weird fiction. Um, I think every kind of studio needs needs the kind of fiction of mm. we're, we're doing some really good work here, and everybody needs to, in a, in a certain degree needs to toe that line because. If, if you were all doing dog shit, you'd be all be fed up, you know, you'd yeah. be miserable. So everybody needs to re think when they're in an agency working, like, oh, this is really good people, yeah. this is a really good place, we're doing some really good work. Even though you might not necessarily be doing that actually good work when you actually think about it. But you need that kind of myth to perpetuate everybody. But this is what I mean, There's, like, there's again, there's like a glass ceiling to that idea because it's like, well... What if you pro what if you just peppered in a couple of people that were a bit bit different to you mm. or the opposite to that person there? Yeah, that might complement and it might raise that bar, and you might actually start doing some really good shit rather yeah. than some adequate shit. And no, those are definitely. the people you're that. Well, we've heard it before. Those are the people who, so to speak, oh, they don't quite fit the culture. Yeah, is, is that where we're going sort of full circle in a way? Mm. Where I mean, like, look at how like agencies or like millennial workforces are depicted on tele, like in films. There's definitely mm. like an archetype that they try and portray. It's like the twenty-something hipster type who might like eat certain barley, foods, or you know, yeah, like it's. It's sort of like we're like we're one blend group of, mm. of people, mm. and I think if that's translating to how other people view it, it has to be somewhat representative of what's actually going on inside. Yeah, and I, I think you know you just look around the place. Everybody feels that their their spaces are unique, and they're not. Everybody's got offices like we've all got offices, and it's just ridiculous. You know that's why we have all these jokes about agencies having foosball tables and beanbags. It's like yeah. they, they don't just spring out of nowhere. <laughs> Because everybody fucking has them. Yeah. Because that's their idea, their perceived notion that's accepted of, oh, we're a little bit crazy. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, actually, you're not. 
Yeah, looking with our heads on it, we've got a slide. <laughs> what about the debate around uh, pay, Craig? Because I know this is something you're very passionate about and there's two sides to this coin, isn't there? And there's the one side that says where well, everybody should be paid even for interning and, and yeah, you know, very much so. Does it feel to you like there is a generation that says, well, you know, we had it bad. We didn't get paid. You had to work under an art director or a creative director for two years before you even got the mention of pay is that very much, uh, you know, holding us back in a way? It's not really a sustainable mindset, the, the the idea of, you know, having to work until your fingers bleed before you can get anywhere and somebody starts noticing you and then, you know, it's time served yeah. at the end of the day. Again, yeah, I think it's, I think, I think you have to admit it's, 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 it's changing a little bit. I think it's different now in terms of what you're saying. I think it's, I don't think you have to sort of graft your way to the top in that respect. Hard work is always going to be valued and hard work should be valued because it means effort and it means care and it means attention and it means a kind of, it shows a bit of passion or love or whatever kind of, you know, that sense of care that someone has in their work. And Mm. if someone has that, to be honest, it's really hard to stop them doing it. Um, If they want to stay late and they want to do it, then they will. I don't think it's always a case for someone enforcing that. But that said, I think that's another kind of stick that a lot of people can use to get what they want out of people. Um, and they can sort of hold it against people and say, well, you need to, you know, you need to stay later to this. But in my experience, that's, it, again, it's, it's fucking stupid. Mm. You don't do better work just because you work 14 hours rather than eight. Mm. Yeah. Mm. What yeah. if you can work amazingly for four hours and then you need to collapse and you mm. get everything you need to do done, then what's wrong with that? I just think it's, I think it's, a, it's, it's, it's a bit of a dinosaur, really, that kind of model. The idea of earning your stripes yeah. isn't there. Well, yeah, keep... the earning you your stripes that, thing. It's like you can get paid while you're earning your stripes. Like it costs a lot more to live now than it did before. Yeah, mm. I mean, the, yeah, the, mm. sort of separating the work ethic thing. I think the earning your stripes stuff, I mean, that's just a kind of, that's just like a gatekeeper issue, isn't it? That's the boss sort of saying, when you meet my standard, I'll tell you when you've met my standard. And I think that's, mm. that's really, really bad. And I don't think that's really going to empower staff or people or, or collaboration in any kind mm. of kind in order to do the work that you think. I think it comes from a different place than that, and it's not about that. I think it goes back to what we were saying about the kind of, if you're ambitious and you're flying forward, why don't you pay a little bit more attention to the wake you're leaving behind you? Yeah. Because I think you need to do that as well, and you need to show people how you got to where you got so they don't have to go through the crap that you did. Yeah. And you wouldn't accept that in society. Yeah. You wouldn't accept you know, someone to go through utter turmoil mm. in in respect of a crime or in respect of any kind of hardship and then expect everyone else to go through that. Yeah, mm. it, it is would kind change. of like a bit of a bitter approach. Mm. It's like, well, it was crap for me, so it's got to be crap for you. Yeah, Whereas we should be thinking, you know, this is where it was bad for me. I'm going to improve that for whoever's coming after Yeah, that. no, you're right. You're absolutely right. And it's a sort of... It's a it's a it's a souring thing, and I, I really I really can't get my head around why you'd want to why you'd take enjoyment from watching someone else suffer just because you had to. Mm. I, just, I just I just think it's don't you want to help somebody because they might be able to go further and higher yeah. than you are. Well, I do I do them. believe that there's a certain caliber of people, of like managers and people in C-suite level positions, that think that sort of tough love makes people better workers. I, I feel like some people genuinely believe that. I think you know I, I, I'm not saying that. Everybody should have it easy breezy and you should be able to just, I think procedures mm. need to be in place and I think some people need to be pushed rather than sort of encouraged sometimes. But yeah. it's, but you, you, this is what I mean, you have to be sensitive to people. It's, we're talking about creativity here, we're talking about something that is completely different, like fundamentally to every single person mm. and each person has their own methods of processing it and getting it out. 
So you can't just apply a, you have to work hard as everybody else is in order to get your thing out. If you want the best out of someone, then you have to be bespoke with that. Yeah. And do, you think, do you think there's a, you're completely right, something to be nurtured, isn't there? And I'm just thinking about it now as we're talking, is there a hierarchical issue within, you know, the creative industry? I think advertising, you know, you've got your, you know, juniors, midway, senior, director level, you know, creative director, as I would say before the creative director, you have the art director, the, the copywriter, senior copywriter. It seems to be, you know, for an industry that thrives on and, and for a time where it feels like creativity should be very democratic. Anybody can have a good idea, we always tell ourselves. Anybody can have a good idea idea and yet we still have this I mean do you see that as kind of archaic in a way or is it necessary like Mo you said I see it more and more so as archaic I think I I mean I personally detest hierarchy um, because I, I genuinely believe that everybody can have a good idea mm. um, I think the the, the reason the, for me design particularly which is you know where I sort of speak but I guess most creative agencies most cre whether you're in fashion or advertising or whatever we borrow a lot from you know, uh, models of law, sort of law firms, we, but we borrow from kind of more, more voc not vocational, but more industrial kind of models on how we then structure our own agencies. Yeah. That's a legacy thing. But in law and in hospitals, hierarchies exist because lives are at stake, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, if, if mistakes happen, they will be picked up by someone in a more senior position with more experience who is guiding that kind of process, hopefully. So if you're on an operating table, they don't just go, right, it's your first day, have happened. a go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's Your 30 that. years yeah. is 30 years for a reason. Yes, yeah. but when you translate that model onto a thing that deals in creativity, which everybody has from the day they're born, from something, you know, all kids draw, you know, from, mm. from something as inherent as that and as organic and human as that, it's it's kind of outmoded. It, the only reason it needs to come into play is when it's being applied. But at the idea level, the creative director does not have a better idea than the junior. Yeah, it's like how, how like high can you fly if someone's sat right on top of you? Yeah, so the rest of it, the whole kind of idea that hierarchy exists because that person knows more. It's like, no, they don't. They don't know more. And they have they can't have a better idea than anyone else in the room, whether mm. they've been taught or as it, or they're a designer or they're on the accounts team, for mm. example. They can't. That is, that is factually incorrect. The only thing they can do is probably shepherd that process once the idea has been had. Mm. And that's and it is, the only thing it says in an agency, if you're a creative director, is, is probably you've been doing this more years than the junior has. Because mm. there's that's a pureness it. to creativity, isn't there? There's a, there's a fluidity almost there where is. it's like, right, anybody, well, like we said, anybody can come up with a good idea, I suppose. Yeah, and this, the, and this is why all of the, this is where like all these kind of discussion points that we've been having about class and about gender and about background and, you know, and, and race, all of these things come into play at this point because it's like that's that's the richness and the and the meaningful diversity that we need. Because if we, if we have that in the room, we're going to have a better idea. And then if we get rid of hierarchy, those better ideas are going to make it through to the stage where they yeah, then communicate like to audiences. They have to be able to be heard as well. And I always worry that, like, some ideas don't even get heard so people could have these great ideas and then they're sort of dismissed, maybe not even consciously, sometimes subconsciously because of these, like, inherent biases that we that we have. And, you know, and I just that's why I hate hierarchy. I've seen it far too many times of the creative director at the top feeling like they have to have the idea that then everyone else has to work up mm. or they're too insecure that the fact that they won't recognise a good idea and let it come through in the way that they want. There's always... In my experience, at, at some point, there's a meddling, you know, a meddling fraction where the creative director comes in and, and imposes something on it. 
for a, a reason that's inexplicable to everyone else. Mm. They just go, oh, you know, they're doing the thing again. <laughs> yeah. Peacocking. And, and I think that is an incredible shame that they, it's almost like they don't trust the people that they've hired yeah. in their own organisations yeah, to do the job that they've hired them to do. Yeah. And I find it such a shame because there's nothing better in my experience and I try and work as much as I can like this of just letting people do that and have the freedom and the structure and the support, of course, to, you know, have a sort of safe space where they can come with an idea. And even if it, even if they're really insecure about it or really unsure, they can still just say, this might be shit or I might be losing my mind or whatever, but I've had this idea mm. and not be laughed at by someone on the other yeah. side or not, you know, get bollocked or not be told they need to earn the stripes before they come with anything like that in order to do it. Just have a just a just a serious discussion about what the idea is, and collectively, I just I can't see why that is a problem. But hierarchy fights against that. Yeah, you say you say like giving people a, a structure. I feel like that might be a reason why some people or a lot of agencies still hold true to this sort of legacy hierarchy thing because they think it's a way of structuring processes. And I know in creative industries especially, making sure processes are as smooth and streamlined as they can be, like for the client's sake, is like obviously of really high importance. Is there an alternative structure perhaps that we can look to that isn't so archaic um, but still lets us keep processes smooth and, and flowing? I mean, personally, I think we should look at heterarchy rather than hierarchy, which means that everybody's on the same level. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like concentric circles, but when you turn it on its side, everybody's on that same level plane. And I think that for me is just identifying the key moments where experience actually can contribute in order to improve or manage the creative process and mm. not hinder it and yeah. not get in the way of it. Because if, if you, if you, if you imagine, I mean, the best way I've always explained this, and this is so shit and so nerdy, so I apologize in advance. No, um, we love the nerdy. Bring it on. Is, is, is the kind of, is, is a film analogy, really. Um, the sort of 99% of all agency models are the godfather. It's one person at the top and then it's a pyramid structure right down to the junior people. And it's all collectively just dribbled down from that one person. And that's it. Some people have the reservoir dogs model, which is, you know, oh, we're all, you know, you know, we're all good at one thing. We're all characters. We'll go get together, do a job, and then we'll disband again. And then there's the sort of Ocean's Eleven model where everybody does something a little bit different, but they come together for a collective, do a job, and fuck off again. My perfect model, I think, is probably the Turtles. <laughs> all four young people do all the work, and they're just guided by one experienced person who doesn't really meddle in it unless he has to. The Ninja Turtles. Yeah. <laughs> love that. Sort of love that. They're, they're all teenagers, aren't they? Yeah. And they go out there and they fuck up and they get things wrong, but they have a go and they try and do the right thing. And if Splinter needs to turn up and rescue them, he does. Yeah. It's, it's, it's but so that, true, isn't that it? Just, he's lying in the sword in his little car, isn't he? Yeah, no, he's I like that. It's, even, like it's that. even those adverts for, for teaching that you and see where they sort of say, like, the yeah. things you hear in the classroom, like, wow, you know, perspectives that I wouldn't even thought of because it's mm. uh, almost brain that's been untainted by, you know, society's vision of you know what's well it comes into groupthink and yeah. stuff like that isn't it You're right so. like it, it's definitely like present in classrooms and you know talking about how we get more people you said right at the beginning you know judges of awards say can only judge what's put in front of them and i guess making sure that work gets there for me starts with education um and starts with with schools and and getting young people into these kind of careers yeah. no matter where they're from but equally i think you know, even if you're talking about industry standards, if you don't enter a work, that doesn't mean the one that wins it is the best campaign that year. It's just the best campaign that can afford the entry fee. Yeah, know? that's true as well. Cost is such a barrier. So, there's, yeah, again, it's multifaceted, but, in, you know, generally speaking, I think you're right. I think, I mean, education could solve, you know, 
eight, if not nine out of these 10 questions. That's where, again, like I said at the beginning as well, like education is not exempt from this discussion because there's a, it, you know, you take take gender and class into these things, for example, you know, and, and background. Um, it's, in, again, I'm speaking about graphic design here, but it's in, in, in the classroom of the university, it's sort of 70 to 80% female. And then you look at the sort of entry level into a, an agency or into the industry, it, that's flip the other way around mm. so where do the women go what happens yeah just so Theo and I went to Leeds Arts University recently to speak to some creative advertising students and their tutor who's a previous guest that we had on called Nick Young he said that the majority of his class so the people that we spoke to they were majority women as well but yeah when you get to like actual agency or they start going into work it's still like majority creative directors mm. are men it flips it's it's very strange yeah, and where do they there's, go? there's some sort of leak in that pipe where it's filtering yeah. women out of that well, they're or, allowed an education or, or but actually you know, when they try and get a job however you want to do it I'm not I'm, I'm shit at plumbing so I'm not going down that analogy but there's some sort of blockage or something yeah. that is filtering out yeah. female creators that, that are ceiling. getting in there but equally if you come even further back I think the, the 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 largest kind of demographic, I guess, if that's the right term, that struggle to even get into unis is white working class lads. So they're not yeah. they're not getting the choice of getting through and getting into the university system yeah. and getting into the the, the, the industry. Mm. And and you know, and I know we're talking about train tracks here, which I don't think should exist at all. But you know, given we can't just you know do a fight club and blow the entire thing up, you know, we have to like sort of work with the system we've got and change that for the better. Mm. Hopefully by evolving 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 we'll get to the right place but you know working class lads which i you know i was i managed to get through that and i've got in there but i still feel like uh, you know i face a relative stigma from people i've I've sat on boards for places like dnad and I, you know i've asked stupid questions like when everybody's having a discussion about a waitrose card not knowing what the fuck we meant you mm. know and i was gonna say said, you still run into those what, prejudices what's, what's, then? what's that i remember being at an agency in london when i on placement so we're talking 18 years old and I'd never been to London before in my life, um, apart from a, a bus trip to the Natural History Museum once, and literally, literally bus outside, walked in, came back out, back on the bus. Um, and I was in, I was at this agency for two weeks, and the first, the first day I went out, I sort of went out on my own to grab some lunch because I didn't want to like, you know, who's having lunch? I wasn't that confident at all, so I just went out on my own. I thought I'll hide for an hour and come back. And, I, um, and one of the lads who was, I guess he was like the junior designer, he asked me, oh, what, what did you do for lunch? I didn't see you around. I said, I just went to, a, you know, I got a sandwich and wherever else. But I had a candle, can of dandelion and burdock with me. Mm. And I'd, I'd finished that and he was like, what's that? I was like, it's dandelion and burdock. He's like, what, what's that? And I was like, it's dan dandy bee. And I had to explain to someone the other day what dandelion and burdock Everybody was. was, that was what they would, they just took the piss out of me for liking dandelion and burdock. What's this fucking northern thing? Okay, this here. And they were all like doing, taking my accent off and everything like that. And I, f I felt fucking awful. I just, I wanted to go home, you know, I just wanted to phone my mum and say, just put some money in my bank so I can get a train fare, please. Because I can't fucking stay here. They'd rip it, piss out of me every day for liking dandelion and burdock. And I just didn't, I thought, like every every kid does when they grow up, they think that what they have as a kid is what everybody, every oh, kid has. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I just, I couldn't get my head around the fact that they'd not heard of what Dandelion and Burdock was. <laughs> yeah. Interesting one for you, then. But the tiny little things, but you'd be surprised how much of a, you know, oh, how much they Oh, it's a tiny hurt. little thing yeah. every day you know, for years and years, and you get chip, to like... The chip away. Yeah, of Berlin, isn't it? The accent is still something I get all the time, and you know, I apologise for it when I come on things like this, because I, I think it's something in me that I always think... Or they think I'm this thick, thick twat, you know, from from Yorkshire, and they think I'm tight, and all these kind of stereotypes mm -hmm. they have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that kind of 
it makes me go in a little bit. It's not stupid at all. And I think it's important an important point to bring up, especially because working class men or women, it's it's a very underrepresentative, um, underrepresented minority group, shall I say. Um, but, you know, we have to think about everyone, um, including the people who are wearing their minority sort of on their person, on their face, and everyone's going to be feeling that way. Um, and I think the more that people can speak up and say, you know, this is the thing that still happens and, you know, it'll affect you. It'll happen when you're a teenager and affect you still when you're in when you're in your 30s. I think the more that we talk about it, the more, well, awareness mm. it'll get and hopefully some action from awareness. On, on, on that subject, though, as well, like, you know, it's very relevant now because we're almost seeing the flip in a way. Like, I want to know, you know, what you two sort of think of this kind of... You know, the North's the cool place to be now. And this would be really very relevant to people, you know, in the UK. But you see a kind of Channel 4 just moved to Leeds. You know, Media City's obviously massive in Manchester. A lot, you know, big creative spaces. Mm, that's Are true. you seeing this as the, the North has become a kind of, you know, the voice of, you know, I don't know how to say this, but a voice of creativity in a way or, or an untapped resource? or the whole, Well, they've oh, moved because oh, it's cheaper, haven't they? But yeah. hopefully there's a positive well, result gonna, out of that. Well, I was going to say, do you see this as just the Londonification of the North in a way? How, how, how do you sort of interpret that as... The North will rise, Theo. <laughs> 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 the North remembers. I mean, I've got a full game of thrones. I, I'm not sure. West I think... to work, complete exception to <laughs> the rule. Yeah, I, think, yeah. we will, yeah. I think you're right. I think there's a logical and practical element in, to it in that, you know, London's just turning into this really capitalist lung that's so expensive to live in and work in that it sort of inhales people on the morning and exhales them on a night and that's really bad I think um, it's become this weird sort of monoculture as well and because it is a kind of global city I think in you know investment from other countries and other nations has changed it dramatically as well as what's going on in there in itself I'm not sure I'm 100% comfortable with what's happening with places like Manchester and Leeds and Sheffield because particularly in, in the social structures, you're just seeing a lot of transient spaces pop up. I think mm. if you look around Manchester where we are now, there's cranes everywhere and they're building mm. high rises that not many people can afford to live in. Yeah. Um, but people will probably get coming on trains, sleep there for the night, sod off wherever they come from. Does does it feel tokenistic in a way, I suppose, is the, the I, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I don't, I'm not sure if tokenistic would be the right thing. I'm, um, it 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 doesn't feel genuine though. Mm. I think that would be my word for it. This this expansion and this kind of reverence and this sort of love for the north doesn't necessarily feel genuine. I think it. I think for a lot of people, it's probably something they're just dealing with. Yeah. Mm. Um. And I've I've pretty much for the vast majority of my working career, I've been based in in Manchester in the north. And obviously, people think that I've returned here. You know, like because I, I, I studied down in Cornwall and I worked in London for a bit, and then came back up here when I had the first opportunity. And I think people have. Yeah, they think I've come home. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but I, that, yeah. that wasn't the case at all. I was I was always just wanted to go where I could do some good work and have some impact. And I was yeah. I've never, never ever not been afforded the opportunity whilst I've worked in Manchester for myself and for other people when I was work, you know an employee. So I think the North has a lot to offer and a lot to give. But if it just gets flooded out by the sort of the you know London of the North or you know the the cheaper model, I think it's going to lose a bit of that kind of soul and a bit of that that ethos I guess mm -hmm. or I don't whatever you want to call it you can romanticise it whatever but you say grit it, but I don't know if that's there's, a, there's, there's a feeling there's an emotive connotation to it that yeah. it will lose I think if it just gets flooded by the kind of London thing because we'll become everything we hate yeah and I'm, I'm scared of that yeah I have to be I have to be honest I'm scared of that I'm scared of this sort of this this sort of Labour Council that feels increasingly just more Labour in name than it is in action mm. 
the, the sort of the housing report that came out the other day in the Guardian article about, you know, the, the zone out of all, you see him, he's so visible. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but out of all of those developments that were flying up, I think 23 of them, only 23, and there must be, they were in the, you know, hundreds, tens of hundreds of these developments. Only 23 complied with the, the affordable housing laws that That's the council ridiculous. put down. So there's a there's They're almost a paradox empty, there, though, even for you know the, the people you mentioned before, you know working class lads and whoever in these towns, there, there seems to be a feeling that okay, right, it's all on your doorstep, but even then, you know, it's yeah. still a walled garden and you're still playing a sort of convoluted yeah. game. Yeah, we're st- we, you know we're but back the doorstep's on changing. Yeah, we're back on pay again. You know, people need to be able to afford this, and we need to talk living wage, not you know just minimum wage and. Yeah. You know, everybody, I think pay again, pay in education because people need to be able to afford to take up these opportunities as much as be offered them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, that's on us, you know, it's fair, you know, fair days, <laughs> fair days pay for a fair day's work. You know, it's one of them. That, that's interesting as well, because sort of slightly going off subject here, but one of the things we've been talking about recently a bit is trying to, you know, really put a value on our industry. And if, you know, they'll say if the, the, the industry disappeared tomorrow, would anybody notice, you know, there's obviously a lot of hot air that goes around. It, does it still feel like there's a sense that work, to work in the creative industry is a privilege, should I say, when you compare it to, say, I don't know, like the NHS, like you said, like a trade, like a building trade, you know, does it feel like it's a, a fair day's work or does it feel like, you know, there's obviously a, a lot of people, with, you know, in the industry like us who are, you know, would give her everything, but there's still that feeling that, uh, you know, it's not taken as seriously in that respect. Yeah, That's I think, sure I think at, yeah. kind of, com- <laughs> you know, commercial creativity is, is heavily reliant on, you know, primarily economic factors. So if the economy is doing good and more businesses are springing up selling more things and we'll help them sell them and we'll help them shift mm. them and we'll help them be communicated to whatever audience they want so in that respect you know there might always be a place for it um i think it's viewed as a privilege by people who work say in like trade jobs and in the nhs and i think that's why when like campaigns try and speak about their issues and we try and like play the diversity card there is a lot of skepticism and backlash around it because these people feel like they're not represented by us like you'll see it on social all the time an advert will come out and it might have the best of intentions and it might actually do an important job brings a subject you know really big awareness but then you get all the people who are commenting saying you know well if you think about it these are just a couple of marketing guys in suits in a boardroom putting this out there so who are they to dictate that message yeah I mean, you know, we're not changing lives uh, in terms of saving them and, you know, improving the health and well-being of people. We're, we're not doing that and we're not policing streets and, you know, we're not stopping crime by any means. But you know, culture is still important and education is still important. Mm. And, and, and I think it's a wider societal problem of, you know, understanding, first of all, that we have a culture worth celebrating and, and you know, kind of getting involved in. And that's not that's not exclusive to us that work in the creative industries. That's something that everybody has, you know, mm. everywhere, mm. nurses, mm. doctors, police, teachers, whatever. You know, we're never going to be top of government policy, for example. But culture still is important. And the arts and those kind of creative communities are really important in, in creating a richer, more meaningful society. Um, mm. So we will always have value. I don't think it might necessarily be the commercial value on which it's placed but I think there will always be a role for that yeah just probably one that we won't get paid as much to do <laughs> I'll, wrap, I'll wrap us up on a final point how far are we given everything we've discussed and everything you've seen Craig and your experiences how far are we from this harmony where it is a dem- democratic environment where it doesn't you know regardless of class mm-hmm. will never be perfect but how far are we from a, some form of harmony do you think 
I think, yeah, I agree. I think but the idea of perfection is something that's sort of constantly moving, which I'm completely at peace with. But I think the the gutting thing about it is that we, we, we don't necessarily have to be that far away from it at all if we just made some small changes. Yeah. And if we made changes to, you know, to solving the gender, you know, problem, to solving the class problem, solving the race problem and the equal pay problem, then we might get close to a meritocracy where everybody can just have a fair stab at it yeah. and everybody can just have uh, an equal opportunity at something that they might care about or be interested in. And from then on, that's that's where it can only go towards a perfection that we sort of come together and collectively mm. decide on what that is. But until we reach a meaningful kind of meritocracy, but which we're never going to get without true kind of diversity in, in every sense of the word, we will always be quite far off. That's mm. the shame of it. That we have a bit of a safe work problem at the moment. Just like one final question, something we spoke about on the phone, which I think you called the Obama syndrome. Right. Which is uh, sort of our uh, tendency to reject left field work. Interested just to hear a bit more about that. I, th I think the Obama thing is, is probably, more, uh, you know, we're going back to the idea of a false standard again. I think we, we're so busy creating work that we, that again, is in this sort of fiction that we think that, oh, this is really good and this is really good. We seem totally surprised when someone does something really good and really different and meaningfully changed. And it doesn't take a genius to, to point out like people like Obama do that. And that's just because they come from a different place. Yeah. And that's kind of what I mean by that. It's 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 not necessarily a left field or radical policy in terms of what Obama was putting forward. It, it was just from a different place for a different people and people respond to it. And, and you can't, suddenly there's this, oh my God, how's he come up with that? He must be a genius. It's like, he's <laughs> probably not a genius. He's probably not a genius. He's probably just thinking about it differently than yeah. everyone else's because you're so ingrained in your kind of, mm. in, in the, in, and again, the monoculture of, of American yeah, that's politics. that's a perfect example, isn't it? Seems like socialist thinking and a capitalism kind of framework. Yeah, and it goes, it goes either way, whatever the majority is. It's, it's, it's a, it, the, another way of putting it, I guess, would be, you know, it's really easy to be different. You could just shout something out that's different and go, you know, completely opposite to whatever's being said, but it's, it's not as easy to be better. So I think it's really good that someone, that we have the idea that someone like Obama can come along with a policy that is different and could improve people's lives. Yeah. But that's just someone breaking through the monoculture and, and, and having the opportunity and the means, let's be honest, mm. to be able to do that. Would you rather be different or better if you could only be one in terms of your work? I'd, well, I mean, I'd rather, again, I'd rather improve people's lives and, and do. I think, uh, yeah, in terms of, I mean, you'd be really hot. I'm not, so, I, you know, I don't want to be Obama. I can't do that. I'm nowhere near that level. <laughs> it's big shoes to fill, Jeez, to be fair. Yeah. Um, you know, we're talking about design, aren't we? <laughs> do I want to make a better design? I mean, that'd be, you know, it's just, it's a really different box of frogs. But, um, you know, if I can do, put something out into the world that doesn't, contribute to the shit that's out there already and add to the problem then and i can see that as an improvement then that would definitely be what i'd take over just doing something for doing something's sake because mm. it's different to what everybody else is doing thank you craig my pleasure thank thank you. You. To end it on um yeah a lot obviously discussed there a lot of takeaways i think for a lot of people i think a lot of you know, looking in that mirror and looking at yourself and kind of, yeah. it's, it's got to come from a want and not a box ticking kind of exercise, as we always say, isn't it? And Definitely. Change starts with you, I and suppose. as always, uh, we'll be inviting Craig to join our Facebook group for Social Minds if he would like to. And if you guys have any questions for him, please send them our way. Brilliant, that Smash in. Thanks, Craig. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please remember to leave us a review on iTunes because it really, really helps and allows us to bring you brand new episodes every 
single week. This has been the Social Minds Podcast with myself, Theo Watts, Eve Young, and produced by Ollie Thompson. <laughs>